How's everybody doing this morning? I knew that um, I couldn't wear this before you guys sat down because people may have not walked in the door. But then, you know, I saw the, the flood of some people wearing Seahawks stuff and, and then I got to see, yep, I knew it. I knew it was coming. It was coming. I got to see my daughter Avery, five years old, wearing her little 49er outfit, walking across the parking lot. And um, I told her, I said, Avery, are you ready for what's going to happen today? And she goes, we're going to watch the Niners. I said, no, no, not that. What's going to happen at church today? So, um, so she's ready. And if you, if you uh, tell her anything Seahawks, she'll probably you know, shout, boo Seahawks, go Niners. She'll have a lot of fun with it because she's my little Niner girl. Aurora doesn't care about football. I don't know where I went wrong with her. <laughs> yeah, the people that don't. It's, you, got, you guys can leave. Just kidding. <laughs> Um, I'm excited to be here today. Yes, obviously it's you know it's football kickoff season. Uh, the, you know, the, the Seahawks and Niners are both playing you know right now, which is um, going to be fun to go home and watch. But um, I thought it would be fun just to wear this, and you know, I know football is a big thing around here, but also uh, wearing this I think could be a good example and challenge for how much grace is my church going to show me today, as I as I come up here wearing um, enemy gear in what I consider enemy territory. So uh, we'll have a lot of fun. I know through the football season. Um, I typically don't talk a lot of trash except for football. Um, it's, it's a sickness and a disease that I'm not looking to cure. I will just let it fly, and I'll have a lot of fun with it. They still play? I thought they retired last year when Breeze did. But anyways, we'll, we'll have fun. Um, now, if you want, um, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to keep diving in and unpacking some grace today. And last week we talked about how grace is more than just forgiveness, and we're going to keep talking about that theme today, but also um, a new phrase that I was kind of thinking of. And we're going to talk about, are you paralyzed by grace? Are you paralyzed by grace? Now, some people can take that a whole bunch of different directions, but I'll, I'll unpack it as we go through it. But Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll be reading a chunk of our uh, scripture today. And um, I'm excited to be here and, and go through this grace series with you. So let's, uh, let's pray and uh, welcome Jesus in as we dive in together. Uh, God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the loving booze that I received when I walk on stage. I know they love me. Uh, but more than anything, God, I'm thankful that you were here. I'm thankful that you get, to, you get to be a part of what we do. We get to be a part of what you're doing, God, as we celebrate uh, this life you've given us together. And I pray that we're, we're challenged, we're tested, we're pushed to move forward deeper in you. And, um, God, that today you touch every heart that is uh, spending time with you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Now, I'm curious. So last week we talked about the balance of grace and truth. And uh, the question I'd wondered was, I asked, how much grace are you and how much truth are you? Now, I talked to someone after church who came up to me and said, I believe he said, my family and I talked, I'm 97% truth, 1% grace, and don't worry about the other 2%. But it's, it's a fun thing to analyze, right? Where in the scales do you, do you land when you say, are you totally grace? Are you totally truth? And we talked about how Jesus is the perfect balance of both, right? But Jesus is not a 50-50 balance of grace and truth. Jesus is 100-100 grace and truth. He will give you all the grace and all the truth that comes with it in a perfect balance that is about impossible to, to comprehend, impossible to copy, right? He is the perfect example of both. Now, there's a great challenge that we follow or we have when we follow Jesus today, and it's how we come into this life of grace and what, what our understanding is when we really dive into and unpack what grace does for us and how we can grow in it. Now, grace, the grace of God, this is a reality greater than anything that we can grasp, right? It's more accessible than the air we breathe. It has been captured and domesticated for weekly use. The grace of God reaches across every culture, 
every gender, every continent, the grace of God is for the whole world. Every generation can experience it. But sometimes we reduce it. We see this word grace and we bring it down simply to one word of forgiveness. But it's so much more than that. And sometimes we take grace and use it for our own personal gain instead of the way God really wants us to grow in him instead. And there's a couple things we're going to elaborate on today. They're things that I've said before, but we're going to dive into them again. Um, Truth. There is a truth. God loves you the way you are. That is truth. When he looks at you, he loves you the way you are. The myth that people don't really want to understand with this, though, is that the myth is that God wants you to stay where you are. Truth, God loves you where you are. Myth, he wants you to stay where you are. There are people that say, God loves me just the way I am, and we get comfortable with that statement. We get really comfortable with saying, God loves me just as I am, but we're less comfortable with saying, God loves me so much that he won't let me stay the way that I am. He loves me so much, he won't let me stay the way, the way that I am. Last week, we read from Titus chapter 2, and we learned that his grace, first his grace saves, then it teaches we talked about things that we learn from grace. And most of us are okay with receiving uh, forgiveness, but perhaps we decide to, to skip that day in school when it comes to learn how to apply grace. And, and we, we skip the lessons to learn when it comes how to deny maybe uh, sin or worldly passion and put aside the desires we have for ourselves and to live for him first and foremost. The first and foremost desire of pleasing God and not our own flesh. And, and we, can, we can, you know, forgive each other when we get you know, lost in this point. Because week after week, if you've grown up in church, hearing the message of grace, hearing the message of what Jesus did on the cross, this is not new news to you, right? You come to church and you know this basic fact. For many of us, John 3.16 is just like speaking just your regular language. You, you know the verse. You know what the, the gospel is. You know what Jesus has done. We hear it over and over and over again. <clears throat> but the thing is, we hear it over and over and over again because it's kind of a big deal. It really is a major deal. Without the cross, there's a whole lot that means nothing. So the message of what happens on the cross is a big deal, and that's why it's said over and over again. The ultimate message, though, of the cross, that's what we're supposed to spread to others. That's why we come and we hear it all the time, because that is our mission, to go spread what happened, the good news of Jesus to other people. But on top of that, the more time we spend in church, the more time we can actually hear another message. We can actually hear the message that's true. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And we talked about that last week when we talked about grace. I know that I have said that exact phrase. Nothing we can do earns God's approval. Nothing we do earns salvation. This is the free gift God has given us. I've typed it in emails, and I've grown up hearing pastors say it my whole life. And then after we hear these things... More, more church-going stuff. After we hear these things, we, we learn about the Ten Commandments, right? We, we learn God's rules. We say, all right, God gives us these guidelines to live in. He says, this is, this is what I want for you, and this is the manner of life that this is pleasing to God. And we learn about the fruits of the Spirit. When we have God in our lives, this is what needs to pour out. We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When we have Jesus in our heart, we learn these is, this is what comes out. This is what we're supposed to spread. But then something happens. There's a disconnect, the major disconnect with our flesh, right? Temptation gets in the way. We know what we should do, and then we go the other way, and then we start relying on grace to pull us back in. We make that spur-of-the-moment decision to ignore what we know we shouldn't do. We know the right thing, but we want that so bad in that moment, we make a real quick compromise, and that's where we start letting sin in. 
<clears throat> we make that spur-of-the-moment decision to ignore the truth, and we justify our actions. Now, now don't freak out. This is not going to be a call-you-out message. I'm not going to come out here and start speaking fire and brimstone. I'm not that much truth, right? But this is going to be something that puts us all in the same playing field, something that says we are all in this together. We all have to live in this balance of grace and truth. We all have to understand what God's grace really does for us, and we all have to learn how to apply this in our lives so grace and God can grow us each and every day. I know the more that I study grace, the more I'm challenged to change my life, the more I'm, I'm convicted in, in good ways to move forward with what God has for me. Now, Richard Foster was a man who spent his adult life encouraging Christians to grow in the grace of God. He points out that the message of grace is something more than merely than a means towards forgiveness. Um, he says this. He says, in most pulpits, there's a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. People hear the same message week after week along with the same remedy, and they remain in the same place, not letting grace move them deeper. He writes, having been saved by grace, these people become paralyzed by it. Now, I don't mean paralyzed by fear, but what I mean is that the paralyzation of saying, I, I am so unworthy that I can't change anything in my life, and I just have to live under God's forgiveness, and I will not make any effort to do anything different. I'm not going to grow. I'm going to stay where I am. And there are people that can fall into this category. They can say, just, I'm too afraid to do anything because I'm just a sinner, and I just mess up. But I think grace gives us so much more freedom than to stay in that spot of not risking things to move forward in your walk with God. If we, remain, if we remain just camped in that notion that grace is just forgiveness, man, we'll never discover that there's grace for everyday life. There's grace in everyday conversations. There's grace in forgiveness. There's grace in relationships. And there's grace in ministry to others. In the New Testament alone, grace is paired with so many different things. If you read the New Testament, you'll see there's grace in truth. There's grace in power. There's grace in spiritual gifts. Grace in thanksgiving. Grace in generosity grace in provision, there's grace in suffering, there's grace in destiny, and that's just a surface list. Grace gets paired with so much more than I think we give it credit for, and it's great when you start to understand all these things that grace can do in our lives. Now, our view of grace sometimes gets limited to forgiveness, but I think that Jesus, he can't just be our model for how to receive grace, live in grace, and depend on grace, because he also did some amazing things with it. He taught Peter, John, and Paul, and countless other believers how to believe and live a grace-filled life that spurred churches and a movement in the book of Acts that is an incredible movement. Grace applies to our life in an everyday manner, and we need to understand consciously how we can tap into that supply and let it change our lives. Now, one of the most amazing stories of grace I've ever heard, I heard the story in 2012. I don't know when it took place, but I remember when I heard this story back in 2012. It was a mom that was outside with her children. She was watching them play football in the street. A drunk driver spun the corner, and she watched in horror as her teenage son was hit by the drunk driver playing football. Unfortunately, her son did not survive the accident. The driver was arrested, charged, and convicted. The mother attended his trial, and she stood on the witness stand and testified to what she had seen when she saw her boy die. The driver pleaded guilty. He expressed true remorse for his actions and was sobbing in the trial. During the sentencing, the prosecution was asking for the maximum sentence at the time, which was 20 years in prison for the killing of her son. The mom asked to speak at her sentencing, or the, the man's sentencing. To everyone's surprise, she spoke against the sentence. She pleaded with the judge to give the man something he didn't deserve, minimal jail time, early parole. When the judge asked why, she said, I nailed Jesus to the cross, and he set me free. 
and he loves me. I want this man to understand the gift I was given, and I want to help him in his life not be a part of why he loses it. My son would want the same. The man was sentenced, but the judge was lenient, didn't give him the, the sentence the prosecution was asking for, and he did get early parole. The woman kept in close contact with her son's killer. She drove him to AA meetings, helped him with sobriety, and to this day, he is sober, married, and is a close member of her family still. Wow. Talk about grace, right? I mean, when I heard that story, I was thinking, wow, this, this woman embodied, in, in my mind, what, what God did with us. They killed my son. Come eat at my table. Come be in my family. It's a powerful story of grace. And I can only imagine the, the hurt this woman had when it happened with her son, but then how God had worked on her heart to invite this person to be in her family. And then to see how her love changed his life down the road. It's an amazing story of grace. To those of us who have been in church for a long time, grace means that we've gotten a great deal, right? In church circles, we define it as not getting what we deserve, God's unmerited favor. Or the acronym, you may have heard this one. It's an old one, but it's a good one. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense, if you want to acronym out grace for everybody. And these ideas, these are all really, really true. But I think that if we, if we stick to just these things, we're missing part of it. We're only getting part of it because we're missing a whole part of what grace can be. These partial truths, I think, can really harm our spiritual growth. If we live under the notion where we say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. There's nothing good inside of me. I'll always be a sinner because that's what I always do. Maybe someone here today, maybe that's the, the resonation or the, the thing that you have going through your mind, but I want to tell you, you're so much more than just a sinner. You're so much more than someone that doesn't just have to sit there and say, I can't do this because I'm unworthy. It's okay to have that mindset to know, what you're, to, to know where you are, but know also that God has so much more for you, and he doesn't want you to sit there wallowing in your pity he wants you to thrive in the ministry he's called you to be. And we'll talk a little bit more about Paul and how his attitude played out in this as well. Now, Dallas Willard, um, a philosopher who talked a lot about uh, Christianity and theology, he warns against this idea. He calls it the low-level spiritual living. He suggests that the notion that, our, that um, our destiny is constant failure in Christ's ministry is nothing but unending forgiveness, and many believers experience new birth and are convinced their cosmic state forever is to be that of a baby who is not worthy. Now, he talks about that and says that this is bad theology. Uh, he says that we have overtalked what sin takes away and undertalked what the Spirit puts in you when the sin is taken away. And I think that's a really cool point as you unpack it, because I know that, that God comes and he does forgive our sins, and it's a great thing, but it doesn't stop there. There's so much more that he empowers us to do because of this. It's not just a now go live your life sin-free, it's a live your life to the fullest sin-free. Live your life with a mission sin-free. Live your life full of grace and share the word and dive into the ministry I've called you to sin-free. We don't just have to sit back and wallow in it. The book of Hebrews discusses this practice of forgiveness before Jesus came. So it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. 
would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those whose sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now, note, note the final phrase. So the people in the Old Testament experienced an annual reminder of their sins, something they had to look at over and over again throughout the year. This is what we did. The unspoken message that can be pulled from this is that mankind was powerless before sin, before, with sin before Jesus and apparently powerless against it after we receive him. This is referred to, like I said, as the miserable sinner theology. Feeling so unworthy, feeling so helpless that you literally stop trying to get better. And this is a real thing. People stop trying to get better. Simply put, if we're told often enough that we're miserable, if you tell yourself often enough that you are just a horrible, miserable person, guess what you're going to start acting like? A horrible, miserable person. There's a reason we don't look at our kids. I hope nobody does. You don't look at your kids and just tell them all the time how bad they are. Right? You want your kids to feel confident. You want your kids to feel good. You want them to know that they're going to grow and get better. I once saw a comic strip that showed two dogs talking to each other, and one dog said, hi, my name's No-No Bad Dog. What's yours? I thought that was great. You know, it's just, I don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, keep telling myself that I'm so horrible that that's what I just believe about myself, that I'm just a horrible, worthless, no good person because I know I'm so much more in God's eyes. In Christ, we get to be made righteous. We get to made whole, be made whole. We get to be made forgiven and redeemed to a new life bearing the very image of Jesus. And for some people that fall into the miserable sinner theology, following Jesus does not include the possibility of being transformed to be more and more like him. Imagine trying out for a team. And I'll do this because, you know, it's, I figured it was a fitting analogy because it's football season starting today, right? You meet the coach. You go out, you try out for the team. Your coach gives you pointers, things to grow in and you make the team. Now, you have a couple options. The first is number one. Your coach talks to you and gives you some pointers. You can look at your coach and say this. You can look at your coach, what he says, acknowledge your shortcomings, move to get better. You work on it, you give it your best. You let your coach guide you. You let your coach correct you. You let your coach really give you tips and pointers on how you can improve in your game. <clears throat> As you improve, you notice other setbacks. So you constantly work to improve your game. You know that you mess up. Hey, I did that wrong. Let me try it again. Let me give it my best. And your coach is right there encouraging you the entire time. Your setbacks don't stop you. They remind you you're a work in progress, and you can always get better. Or you have choice number two. You make the team. Your coach tells you where you need to improve. You decide, nah, I was good at this one thing. I'm just going to stick with that. I'm not going to get better. You know, or you know you could never live up to your coach's standards and every time you talk to your coach, you just feel awful about your game. Nothing you do will ever make you better. No matter what tips you get, you know you're not going to improve. Knowing this, you don't try. You just beg the coach for mercy. Beg the coach not to cut you from the team. Beg the coach to be patient because you're content with just where you are, and hopefully that'll fit in the plan. I'm confident that, that most of us would pick number one, right? Um, knowing that there's something that you can do to improve. And we have a coach. We have a God who says, I'm going to show you where your shortcomings are. I'm going to tell you where some things you can work on are. But it's never to demoralize. It's never to demean. It's always with the goal of improving you and making you better in what he's called you to do. He invites us to his team. He knows you're not perfect. He knows that we'll mess up with our mouths, with our attitudes, with our actions. But he's going to help us along the way. And every time we go to him, he's going to love us every single time. He's going to challenge us. He's going to push us ahead. He's not going to wallow in pity with us. 
He'll, he'll be with us when we hurt, absolutely. When we're sad and broken, I believe God will be sad right there with you. But he also has the ability to say, let's do this now. Now let's go forward. Let's improve. Let's make this better because that's what he wants for you. When we see the big movement of God's grace in our lives, we can be forgiven and challenged to do things through grace. It's not a problem with just our understanding of grace. I think it can also be a problem with our understanding of Jesus' ultimate message, his sacrifice, his kingdom, and his mission for us. If we see Jesus as nothing but an endless offering for sin, I think that, cons- that consigns him to the Old Testament law and Old Testament priesthood because surely G- Jesus is a greater priesthood. He's capable of altering us at the very core, not just reminding us of where we came from, but doing a massive change in our hearts. I'm grateful that he paid the price for my sin, like eternally grateful for what he's done. I, don't, I, don't, I, feel like, I do feel like nothing I can do can show how thankful I am, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to do things. That doesn't mean I'm not going to stop. I'm going to act on it. I'm going to move. We should also be grateful, though, that his resurrection empowers us. What is capable of changing us from the inside out? What we can do, we can usher Jesus out of the Old Testament once and for all, receive him not only as our source of forgiveness, but the master teacher of life. And when we do this, this then becomes the full work of grace in our lives. And, and make no mistake, I'm not trying to downplay sin. Sin, sin, is, sin is bad. Sin is like a cancer that, that comes in, and eventually, the scripture says it, the penalty for our sin is death. Our bodies will fall apart and die, and the penalty is because of sin. It's serious business. But I love that because we have a serious sin problem, we have a very serious remedy for our sin, and that's through Jesus. Paul calls it new creation. We call it new birth. Peter, Peter calls us in scripture newborn babies. And we determine, we have to determine whether these phrases are merely uh, metaphors or they actually do apply to our, our spiritual growth and our spiritual reality, right? Do we really, when we come to Jesus, he says, you are being born again. When a baby is born, does it know how to do everything right off the bat? No. I mean, I'm all the new moms in the room are like, gosh, I wish, Right? Man, but, but true, a baby is born, it takes time. It's going to learn. When a, when a child is learning how to walk, those steps are exciting, but his parents are also like, and fall. You know, they, that's, that's what kids do. They learn. They make mistakes, and they go. When we come into this new birth in Christ, we are like spiritual babies. We don't understand everything that grace has to offer until we learn in it. We walk in it. We grow in it. We don't become Christ followers and then stay where we're at. We get to grow and keep moving forward through it. Grace not only wipes away sin, grace teaches us how to avoid sin. Grace teaches us, because we're spiritual babies when we come to understand these things, we get to learn. There's a cure. It's not just a treatment. Our challenge is how we see Jesus. And for many of us, we can look at Jesus as just a treatment. We can limit the work of Jesus to nothing but forgiveness and lose sight of the possibilities of experiencing this new kind of life with him, through him, here and now Not just someone who forgave me then, but someone who is actively working in me with all grace now. It would be a shame if we looked at Jesus as just a one-time cure for something because his cure does work, not just in our next life, not just as a a step to bring us closer to him in heaven, but it works for here and now. What we're doing now in our lives, grace and forgiveness applies to everything we are doing right now. There's a modern parable that goes like this. There were two high school students who each received scholarships to Harvard University, full rides, every possible expense paid. Both were bright kids and felt intimidated by the reputation of such a college, and they each thought, I don't deserve to be here. 
One student studied day and night, gave it all they had. The other student began to enjoy the thrill of college life, parties, the big city nearby, the freedom of being on their own for the first time. By midterms, the first student was working hard, earning C's, B's, and A's in their classes. The other student was failing every class and placed on academic probation. By Christmas, the first student had earned a 3.0 GPA, but the second flunked out of school. Which of these students laid hold of the opportunity given to him? Now, of course, the answer is the first student, right? And that's, that's not a trick question. If I were to say it was a second student, that'd be yeah, trick, take you out. First student. First student took, took the scholarship and made something out of it, right? Now, humble, hardworking, but the second student became the subject of gossip. Someone saying, you know, people saying, how could they throw away the opportunity? Full ride, why would they just throw that off? Imagine for a moment that the grace of God is like a full ride to Harvard. Full ride, beyond expectation, every expense paid, a life-changing opportunity. Imagine watching these two students, anyone watching these two students would conclude that the student who flunked out had thrown away a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The scholarship to Harvard was a gift of grace, but the truth was that the work was just beginning. See, God's grace is something like this parable. He does for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. God comes to us and does something that we could not possibly do for ourselves. What is beyond our reach, this gift of salvation, this gift of grace, is joyfully paid by Jesus Christ. But his work is just the beginning. I don't want to squander my new life in Christ. I don't want to squander this amazing gift that he gave me that is something I couldn't do on my own. I don't want to say, okay, he did it, now I'm going to go party instead. To say, wow, now he did it, I get to be a part of something that is changing, and I have all new possibilities in my life because of Christ. Like the new student who received the full ride, I want to receive the grace of God for what it is, calling to a new kind of life right now, and I get to give it my best shot. Not just the party life after, not just revel in the good things that come with it, but I get to give it my absolute best shot. Some people um, object to the close association between the words grace and the word work. You know, some, you, know, you would say, grace comes with no strings attached, doesn't it? And we should be clear that there's, there's no amount of effort, nothing we can do to earn grace. That is very, very true. But I think there's, there's some more that goes to it. See, the whole story goes that beyond the fact that God picked up the tab for our sin, the thing we couldn't pay for, but we have this new birth, and it's an invitation into a life with him. It, even not just, again, in the future, but an invitation to work in the life that he has for you here and now. It's not a waiting game. Receiving grace is not, all right, I was forgiven, now let's just wait until I get called home to glory, right? It's not a waiting game. It's something we are actively doing right now. We are participants in God's plan. This is demonstrated for us in the life of Paul and the earliest days that he had when he came to Christ. He knew immediately that Jesus had a purpose laid out for him, and it was totally opposite what he was doing before. He was filled with gratitude for grace and forgiveness, but at the same time, he knew that he had a job. He was full of gratitude for what God did, but he was ready to get to work. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. I love that. He called himself God's co-worker. God's co-worker. In his calling as an apostle, he considered the church in Corinth to be God's field. This is where God is working, and I get to work with him for this harvest, in this harvest. And he considered himself privileged to even be a part of moving into this field to work with God. Now, Paul was aware that he had no moral standing to plant. He had no moral standing to teach. He had no, if you looked at his resume, he should not have been the pastor. The man was on a murder spree. But God changed it. 
But God didn't just say, you're forgiven, now go live a peaceful life, be quiet, you're forgiven, now just move along. He said, hey, have I forgiven you? You want to experience the fullness of my grace? I've got a job for you. I've got a job that's going to be exciting, and you're going to change the world. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You can see the strange combination of words that Paul puts together here. He uses grace and worked harder in the same sentence. He uses grace and worked harder. That's, that's mind-blowing when I started unpacking this because, like I said, sometimes we look at grace as, as the passive, okay, I'm chill now. But Paul says, no, I receive grace, and that means I'm called to do something about it. There's so much more now because of this that God has given me. This was true for Paul, and it's true for us. We are born into God's family. We're born in the family business. And business is booming. We've got a lot to do. God's grace doesn't wipe away our sin, just wipe away our sin. God's grace asks us to join in the work of the kingdom. Grace means we are active participants. Going back to Dallas Willard, he had a saying that I I really took to heart. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. This, this distinction reminds us of the proper response to God's work, saying we're not doing something to earn grace, we're doing something because of grace. We're doing it because he's already given it to us. Paul understood the side of grace. He, just, it is fam- he described this as the same one. He said, this task was of great endurance in troubles, hardships, and distress, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, in hunger. He says that in 2 Corinthians. Because of grace, he endured all these hard things. But it was all in order to share the gift that he was given with the world. Paul had no trouble in seeing the connection between grace and the effort that comes with it. Another pastor, Richard Foster, helps us understand the ongoing work of grace. He says this, grace saves us from life without God, but even more, it empowers us for life with God. I love that. It empowers us for life with God. The grace we receive when we come to Christ, that's just an introduction. As students of Jesus, we need to know that there's there's space to keep growing, space to keep learning and growing in our understanding of sin and forgiveness and what grace does in our lives. Grace opens up this possibility that we do not have to be a yo-yo. Sin, forgive, sin, forgive, sin, forgive. Same cycle every day. That's not our life. Sin and forgiveness. Instead, grace shows us a destiny that we have moving forward in Christ, a a life far, so far removed and free from the bondage of that yo-yo bouncing back from sin and forgiveness again. This is a deeper side of grace. The deeper side of grace is discovery that new birth is followed by growth into the image of Jesus. The deeper side of grace is that when we begin to join in the family business, we also begin to take on the family likeness. Have you ever been told by someone, you're just like your father? Or you're, you're just like your mother. Every now and then, I'll do something, and my wife will go, you sounded just like your dad. And I'll go, in a good way? Like, in a good way, I really like my dad. Um, but then I learned, you know, really, really on, you don't ever tell a woman that's just like your mother, right? You just don't cross that bridge. But in this context, if someone, if, if we're losing, or losing, if we're giving our life to Christ, we're letting grace work in our hearts, If someone says you're acting like your father and we get to point that back to our heavenly father, talk about one of the greatest compliments anyone could ever give you, right? 
We want to be in his likeness. We want to be in his image. We want to be people that say, what I do, the way I live, should point people to him. And then we get to say, let me tell you about the grace of God and how it's so much more than how he just forgave me. It's how he transformed me. It's why I have action. It's why I move forward. It's why I do what I do because of this grace. It doesn't paralyze me because of my fear of sin. It empowers me to work through and in what God has called me to. Here's another way to think of it. Co-laboring with Christ is the very activity that begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Anybody here like to plant gardens? I know that uh, when we, we haven't tried it yet here in Washington, but when we were in California, we, uh, we, every year we had a garden. Tomatoes were something that we grew all the time. But we knew, after the first att- failed attempt, I can't just plant the seeds, water them, and expect things to happen. There, there's some work that goes into it if you really want a garden that's going to look good and produce good fruit. I, I think understanding grace, if, if you just, like your garden, if you just plant it, water it, and walk away, that's like the surface. You're, you're getting the basic elements right. But when you start laboring for it, when you go out there and, and you treat the plants, you, you pull out weeds, you tend to it, you throw some fertilizer in there, then you start seeing how you can grow, and, and the plants grow, and, and one year it looked like a jungle in our backyard. The tomato plants literally looked like they were on steroids. It was ridiculous and awesome. We had more food than we knew what to do with. But in our lives, when we understand that God's grace is so much more than just that surface thing, we can be like that garden that starts to flourish because we're tending to it. We're growing in it. We're taking care of it. And we get to see the fruit of what God is doing in our hearts. And we get to share that with others. Romans 8.29 tells us that our destiny is not only... I'm sorry... I came in the middle of my notes because that whole garden story was not on my notes. I'm sorry. Let me go back a second. <laughs> I'm going to skip to Matthew 11. Matthew 11:20 20 and 30 points out an important revelation. Jesus invites anyone who would follow him to come under his instruction and learn his way of life. Jesus invites anyone that would follow him to come under his instruction and learn his way of life. Matthew 11:28 20 to 30 says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this image was common enough in his day. The yoke is a large collar which places the strength of the oxen or the horse at the disposal of something else, right? They got to put this on the oxen and watch the ox pull, and this thing would just grind through the dirt. Grace calls us to God's work. When we put our strength at his disposal, he will allow us to do amazing things that we couldn't do on our own. When we allow him to be the yoke, we allow him to be something that pulls us, we get to partner with him in an amazing way. The path to becoming more like Jesus starts with an invitation. He says, come to me. Come to me. Be that spiritual baby. Be that newborn that I get to show my love to. And then be that person that grows because it's so much more than forgiveness. You're not going to have to stay where you are. You don't have to be paralyzed where you are. Know that I have so much more for you. I'd like to invite the worship team back up this morning. Grace is so much more than knowing. Grace is really about being. Really about being. If God wants to give me grace to be more like Jesus, and it takes some effort, I'm in. I, I, I'm all in. I don't want it to be a cakewalk. I mean, let's be real. It would be great if it was a cakewalk. But I know it's not going to be a cakewalk. There's going to be those hard roads. There's going to be those, those times where I, d- I know that I'm not enough, but that's where I really get to rely on the grace of God to power me through it. And those are the times that I really get to see just how much stronger God is than I am without him. 
Would you all stand with me today? It comes down to how we take that yoke, how we position ourselves uh, to learn from God, how we position ourselves to say, you know what, God? Your grace is so much more than I could ever imagine. Your grace is so much bigger than me, so much bigger than what I understand. But when I dive into it, man, my life is forever changed. My life is forever changed because I get to move forward with you. And that's why I think grace is something that I know personally I'm going to be learning more and more about it each and every day. Even, even as we finish the, the series here as we keep unpacking grace, I know that I'm going to be challenged. I know there's more for me to grow in, and I know there's more for me to keep going with because it's such a big topic. And we have a God who wants to keep growing you. Never feel like you have to be paralyzed where you are. Never feel like you are too inadequate to do anything. I love how Paul said it. He says, yes, I am inadequate. I'm not qualified. I shouldn't be given these responsibilities. But God made me do these things. God gave me the ability to grow. God gave me the ability to thrive. I'm not qualified. But with God, we can do it. Did you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that your grace is so big. I thank you that, God, I, I thank you that there's so much more than, than just forgiveness when it comes to grace. That there's growth. There's change. There's, there's deepness, there's challenge, there's conviction. And God, I pray that all these things in all of our lives, uh, we, we use Paul's example. God, we say, maybe I'm not worthy. I know I'm not worthy. I sh- that you, I'm not worthy to be doing what you've called me to do. But you have a plan for me anyways. And through me, God, you've, you've justified me. God, you've made me righteous in your eyes. And I pray that we leave here today knowing we're on a mission. We're in the family business. There's things we can do, and you empower us to do it, God. God, be, be that oxen, be that yoke that we get to have that pulls us forward because we can't do it on our own, but we can do all things through you. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen.